In the last episode, we detailed Jimmy Hoffa's evolving relationship with members of the Mafia. In the early 1950s, he began working with a New York-based gangster named Johnny Dio. He was actually my neighbor, though I never met the guy. It was Hoffa's relationship with Dio and other mobsters that finally moved the federal government to go after Hoffa. But you could argue that the final straw that led to the Hoffa investigations was something that happened in the spring of 1956. Victor Rizal was a radio host and syndicated columnist for the Daily Mirror in New York. He wrote a column called Inside Labor. And in the column, you know, he, he was famous for denouncing uh, communist influence in unions. Uh, and then by the early 1950s, he was also denouncing uh, racketeers and unions. And then uh, he was also suggesting that racketeers and communists were working together in a nefarious alliance to, uh, to gain power. Historian David Whitworth. And so he, he wrote in really, I kind of say, like uh, very dramatic, over, overblown language. Um, but he was, a, you know, he had ties to the labor movement and he was, for lots of small regional newspapers, he was the best expert that people had on labor. And then he had a radio show, too, that he would do, and he would sometimes have union dissidents that would appear on the radio show. And on this one particular night, April 5th, 1956... He had had, like, um, a couple of dissidents from the Operating Engineers Union. And then after the broadcast, it's late, say, 11 o'clock, and so they go to uh, Lindy's Restaurant on Broadway. So it's a kind of famous restaurant. You get cheesecake and coffee and stuff. And then... Then they're leaving, he and this group of people, and this guy comes up to him and, uh, without saying anything, throws a, a vial of acid in his face. Rizal is rushed to the hospital, but he's permanently blinded. And there's immediate speculation about who would have done this, right? And so one argument, it was communists because of his attacks on communists, and then the notion is it's racketeers because of his attack on racketeers. And when he finally is able to talk after a couple of weeks in the hospital, he holds, a, he holds a press conference in the hospital room and he says, I was attacked because of the racketeers, um, because of my crusading efforts. And, uh, and they won't stop me. You know, they can, they can blind me, but I can still go after them with my typewriter. And around the same time, the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York holds his own press conference. And he says it was the racketeers. And it was done because uh, Rizal has been helping me in my uh, grand jury investigation of labor racketeering, which I just launched. And so this was, a, this was an effort to intimidate uh, a federal witness and to stop this investigation uh, of racketeering. And meanwhile, this becomes a huge case. The FBI assigns uh, a huge number of, uh, of agents to pursue this case. And um, eventually they, they don't get the guy that threw the acid because he's killed before they can arrest him but they get the group of people who had worked with the acid thrower. And through those people, they get to the guy who they think orchestrated the whole thing, my old neighbor, Johnny Dio. And then the case goes to trial, and uh, kind of a classic case. So two of the conspirators had agreed initially to cooperate with the FBI, and that's how the FBI identified Dio's role in it. Uh, but when it comes time to testify, we're in pre-witness protection. And so both of the witnesses decide that they won't be willing to, uh, to testify in court because 
clearly they're afraid of their lives and their family's lives. So in refusing to testify, they both, uh, instead of cooperating, they get 10 to 20 year jail sentences. But they'd rather do that than testify against Dio. And so the government's case collapses. And, uh, you know, this all happens by, say, the fall of 1956. This, this too, is seen as, a, 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 as an example of the great power that labor racketeers now have. They can defy the federal government and stymie an investigation. From WDIV in Detroit and Graham Media, I'm Steve Garagiola. This is Shattered, Season 4, Hoffa. Episode 3, Blood Feud. The high-profile attack on Victor Rizal galvanized support for the government to go after corruption in labor unions in a big way. But actually, there's more to the Rizal story that David Whitworth says the FBI was not eager to share. So, let me tell you the true story of the acid attack. I did a Freedom of Information Act request from the FBI. It took years to get it, by the way. The FBI officially concluded that it was Johnny Dio who ordered the attack on Rizal. Right? That's the story. The problem is, if that's to stop Rizal from writing stories about Dio, Rizal doesn't write stories about Dio. There are no crusading columns that target him, at least not within like the last previous three or four years. What okay. there is, is evidence that Rizal has been talking to particular labor racketeers in New York and telling them, that if they don't want to be the subject of his column, they need to pay him money. Among those giving money to Rizal was Johnny Dio. The FBI finds that Dio and Rizal actually appear to be friends. Other people have seen them out together. It appears that if Dio did orchestrate the acid attack, it wasn't because he feared Victor Rizal's crusade against racketeering. The best that I could find was there were there was at least one employer who described how he wanted, he wanted to avoid having his workplace organized by a strong union. He had contacted Rizal, and Rizal had arranged for him to pay Rizal money that Rizal would then use to get a paper local that would organize the employer's union. So David Whitmer doesn't know why somebody attacked Victor Rizal with acid. But it wasn't because Rizal was a righteous journalist out to stop corruption in labor. But my assumption is if, if Rizal is out there taking money and using his connection with Dio to make that money, and he's not giving Dio a share of that money, that would be a reason. But none of this is ever made public. Whitworth says the FBI never told the real story because the more compelling version of this crusading anti-racketeering journalist better served their interests. By keeping the real story secret, the government could sell their own version as a way to promote the crusade against labor racketeering. And what a crusade it was. The Senate opened investigations. Chief legal counsel was Bobby Kennedy, who made it his life's mission to prove the Teamsters were dirty and that their leaders, President Dave Beck and Vice President Jimmy Hoffa, were to blame. I mean, Bobby Kennedy, to me, is the greatest crime fighter who's ever lived. This is investigative reporter Dan Moldea. 
he was eating mafia guys for breakfast. And then when he became attorney general, he started eating mafia guys for lunch and dinner too. This guy was relentless on going after the mob. My name is Marvin, M-A-R-V-I-N, Elkind, E-L-K-I-N-D. And in 1952 to 1956, I was the driver for Mr. Jimmy Hoffa. Did Jimmy Hoffa ever talk about uh, the Kennedys, talk about Bobby Kennedy? He spoke about Bobby Kennedy all the time with great hate. He thought he came from a very bad family, that he was raised where everything he thought was right, and it went way beyond politics. He had a great hate for Bobby Kennedy. In some ways, the relationship between Jimmy Hoffa and Bobby Kennedy was actually very simple. Hoffa saw a spoiled rich kid. Kennedy saw a corrupt racketeer. I think an aide to JFK actually described it best. He called their rivalry a blood feud, driven by hatred on both sides. In 1956, Jimmy Hoffa was vice president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He had already earned his reputation. He was a tough guy with suspected ties to organized crime. On the other hand, Bobby Kennedy was just building his reputation as a crime fighter. James Neff wrote a book about the Kennedy-Hoffa feud called Vendetta. At the time of the rackets hearings in 1956 and 57 when they kicked off, John F. Kennedy was thought of as a rich playboy, and nobody knew really who Robert F. Kennedy was. So the hearings themselves, Hoffa in effect, made them big political celebrities because of their, their televised battle over the years. Bobby Kennedy's appetite to go after the Teamsters may have been, at least in part, a function of ego. A Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, a guy named Clark Mullenhoff, had uncovered ties between labor and organized crime. He baited Kennedy into taking on the unions by challenging his manhood. He was almost bullying Bobby, saying, well, you'll never go after the unions because your brother might want to run for president someday and you're a Democrat and you need the unions, so you're not tough enough to go after the unions, but you need to have this committee that you're on take a look at labor racketeering. Oh, and they did. In February of 1957, the Senate's McClellan Committee, under Chairman John McClellan, opened hearings on the influence of organized crime in labor. Mr. Chairman, we'll not go into that. I'm not going I'm into not the merits of the case. I just wanted to find out where he got the money. Now, McClellan was a shrewd guy. He named Bobby Kennedy chief counsel, which made him responsible for questioning witnesses. That place in the spotlight was no accident. McClellan knew the hearings would produce outrage from organized labor, and he wanted that rage pointed at somebody else. Kennedy went straight at Hoffa. Did you say that SOB, I'll break his back? Who? You. Say to who? To anyone. Take give his speech. I don't even know who I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Well, uh, Mr. Hoffa, all I'm trying to find out, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm trying to find out whose back you were going to break. Figure his speech. Figure his speech. Necessary. 
Were the hearings a big deal for America? It was televised. Were people interested at the time? The, the hearings became a very big deal uh, very quickly. Here, this became just the place to be, and people would line up early in the morning, and the lines through you know, the Senate building, you know, going on and on and on. So it was, was really a very hot ticket. Now keep in mind, this was long before cable TV and the internet. The McClellan hearings provided great entertainment. A familiar theme emerged, one that Bobby Kennedy had once been challenged with. You're not tough enough. I'd be very sympathetic if it wasn't for the fact that a majority of these people are in the Central States Conference and people under your jurisdiction. You've got people in Detroit, at least 15 who have police. You've got Joey Glimco in Chicago. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people then. Well, I don't propose... You haven't moved against any of them. I don't propose to act tough, and I will follow the Constitution of the International Union. Hoffa liked to talk about how tough he was and how many push-ups he could do. And Bobby Kennedy, who also liked to brag about how tough he was and how many push-ups he did, he would later tell people, well, when someone has to tell me how tough they are, they aren't really all that tough. What's interesting here is that the observers of the hearings said it was Kennedy who seemed flustered, not Hoffa. He mostly claimed loss of memory to over 100 questions. I'm saying that I do not recall, to the best of my recollection, a discussion of that subject. I may have had it. You may have told me. I don't recall. Mr. Hoffa, I'm not asking you just about one discussion. I'm saying that you met and discussed with Mr. Dio a number of different times during this period of time. And well, Mr. Uh, Senator Eyes pointed out the other day, and you didn't take objection to it, exception to it, that you had a very good memory. It, it, it amazes me that uh, you have such a poor memory about your relationship with Johnny Dio during these, this, these months of 1953. Well, it may amaze you, but I assure you that my memory, as the best that I could recall at this moment, is such. Throughout the hearings, it seemed like Hoffa had the advantage. But he didn't like surprises, so he tried to plant a spy inside the committee. A friend of his put him in contact with a former Secret Service agent, a guy named John Chasty. Hoffa set up a meeting. Now, the deal was simple. Get a job on the committee as an investigator, spy on Kennedy, and report back. Hoffa's M.O. was often to get people on the inside and to become a mole for him. Chasty would get $2,000 a month for nine months. Chasty said later that he felt Hoffa was asking him to betray his country. He wouldn't do it. Instead, he reported the bribe to Kennedy and the FBI set up a sting. Hoffa and Chasty arranged to meet in Washington. Chasty would pick up Hoffa in a taxi, you know, the only way to make sure there were no bugs or wires. Of course, Hoffa didn't know the driver was an FBI agent. They rode and talked. Chasty showed Hoffa some files. They were actual committee documents, eyes only. Hoffa could look but Chasty had to put the files back that night. The FBI was watching and recording the whole exchange. The next day, Chasty calls Hoffa. He's got more documents. They arrange a meet outside Hoffa's hotel. Chasty hands over an envelope. You can keep this one. 
As Hoffa walks back into the hotel lobby, the FBI moves in, and Jimmy Hoffa's under arrest. Now, that case would eventually go to trial, but let's not get ahead of the story. In the summer of 1957, Teamsters president Dave Beck was indicted, eventually convicted of fraud, and sent to prison. This cleared the way for Jimmy Hoffa, who was elected Teamsters president by a wide margin. And jubilant Jimmy Hoffa sweeps in as new president of the Teamsters. I think that there was inside information about Beck that made its way to the committee, and Beck uh, was taken down very, very quickly by the committee, and it was quite a surprise. It's widely believed, though never proven, that the information federal prosecutors used to bring down Dave Beck came from Jimmy Hoffa. He was riding a huge wave of popularity among the union rank and file. This man spearheaded unionism in this country. So as the Senate hearings neared the end, Hoffa was cool and confident. He's like a savvy prize fighter. He bobbed and weaved. Kennedy never landed a punch. Do you have any evidence of the $20,000 in cash that you put into the business? I don't need any evidence. You'll take my word for it as the Internal Revenue has. So in that battle of heavyweights, yeah. Hoffa versus Bobby, uh, was there a winner? It seemed like Hoffa may have gotten the upper hand on, on uh, Robert Kennedy during those hearings. If you wanted to say who won, Bobby or, or Jimmy, I would have to say it was uh, kind of a mixed decision here. But the Kennedy-Hoffa feud would take a bloody and tragic turn. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. According to rules, in 1960, the presidential campaign matched Richard Nixon against John F. Kennedy. In their first televised debate, JFK picked up the fight his brother had started during the Senate hearings. I'm not satisfied when I see men like Jimmy Hoffa in charge of the largest union in the United States still free. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do you solemnly swear? I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will to the best of your ability. John Kennedy was elected president, and he named his brother Bobby the Attorney General, which was a very controversial choice. Bobby Kennedy quickly set up a task force, referred to by many as the Get Hoffa Squad. This is author James Neff. When Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa were, were in the midst of their vendetta, and as it amped up, starting in 57 and continuing, they each used every tactic in the book. They planted moles in each other's camps. They uh, wiretapped each other. Um, they um, did, you know, they used their propaganda apparatus, Bobby Kennedy leaking and providing uh, secret documents and things that were public to reporters so they'd write about it, Hoffa using the International Teamster, 2000 Circulation Magazine, and other, you know, his PR apparatus to besmirch uh, 
RFK just like RFK was besmirching Hoffa. So they, they had an entire arsenal uh, of tactics to destroy each other. In 1962, Hoffa went on trial for the charges involving John Chasty, that lawyer he had tried to bribe during the Senate hearings. Does it suggest anything to you, Mr. Hoffman? Doesn't suggest anything except the fact that you're trying again, as you have many times in this hearing, to bring a headline about or to embarrass Hoffa. That's all. No, I'm attempting to give you my... Bobby Kennedy believed he had a slam-dunk conviction. He was asked for a prediction of the outcome and said, if Hoffa is acquitted, I'll jump off the top of the Capitol Dome. Well, the trial ended with a hung jury. Now, Hoffa was represented by a young lawyer named Edward Bennett Williams, who became pretty famous in the years that followed. Edward Bennett Williams sent a parachute over to Bobby Kennedy's office to kind of uh, give him a little dig. Hoffa also sent along a one-word note, which simply read, jump. I stand here today before you as I stood in front of that court and took an oath. And I was not then guilty, nor am I guilty now. President Kennedy was angry at the outcome. His brother had lost to Hoffa again. Only Jimmy Hoffa can rejoice at his continued good luck. Honest union members and the general public can only regard it as a tragedy. But the real tragedy was just over the horizon. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. November 22nd, 1963. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Every person old enough to remember that day knows where they were when the news broke. Jimmy Hoffa was in Miami. In the restaurant, when Hoffa learned of that, he uh, got to his feet and cheered and was very happy about that. And then after that, he refused to dropped the flag half-mast at Teamster headquarters in D.C., despite uh, the urgings and, and, you know, getting in fights with his number two. So he said, I'm not a hypocrite. I didn't care for the guy, so why should I say I'm sorry that he's gone? Fast forward from there 16 years, late 1970s. A congressional committee reviewed the evidence of the Warren Commission, and they concluded that the original investigation got it wrong, the assassination had been a conspiracy. But who? CIA? Pentagon? Cuban exiles? No, none of the above. Evidence pointed to a conspiracy of mafia chiefs, with Jimmy Hoffa right in the center. I believe Hoffa put a contract out on John Kennedy to stop his brother. This is investigative reporter Dan Moldea. I think that the contract was picked up by Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss of New Orleans, Santo Traficani, the mafia boss of Tampa, Florida, who then arranged and executed the murder.
Robert Blakey served as chief counsel on that congressional committee. He remembers an interview with an FBI informant who had been in prison with Carlos Marcello. And the informant says once while they were outside exercising, the assassination came up because Marcello talked about it all the time. And he said, I did it and I would do it again. You know, basically, yes, there was a conspiracy. I did it and I'd do it again. If you read the findings of that committee, you see Hoffa's name all over it. This is a quote from the committee. The long and close relationship between Hoffa and powerful leaders of organized crime, his intense dislike of John and Robert Kennedy, dating back to their role in the McClellan Senate investigation, together with his other criminal activities, led the committee to conclude that the former Teamsters Union president had the motive, means, an opportunity for planning an assassination attempt upon the life of President John F. Kennedy, end quote. And how about this eerie connection between Hoffa and Jack Ruby, the guy who killed Lee Harvey Oswald? Quote, the committee confirmed the existence of several contacts between Ruby and associates of Hoffa during the period of October and November 1963, including one Hoffa aide whom Robert Kennedy had once described as one of Hoffa's most violent lieutenants, end quote. Regardless of these and any other findings, no charges were ever brought in the Kennedy assassination. But it doesn't end there. Jimmy Hoffa also allegedly tried to recruit a corrupt union boss from Louisiana named Ed Parton to bomb Bobby Kennedy's home. In an interview with journalist Dan Moldea, Ed Parton shared details of a conversation he said he once had with Hoffa. Now, it's a little hard to make out the words, but Parton says Hoffa was asking him to get some plastic explosives. I want some plastic explosives. I want them, when they go off, they'll burn it, goddamn, I have to burn all them something up. And I said, you mean the kids too? He said, that's right. So they belong to that son of a bitch, don't they? I said, now wait just a goddamn minute. I said, I ain't gonna be no part of listening to nothing about kids being killed. He says Hoffa didn't care that Kennedy's kids might be there. Conduct uh, your affairs as the head of a uh, large union. I think as an American In way, 1964, prosecutors brought new charges of jury tampering against Hoffa. The key government witness this time? Ed Parton. To the end, Hoffa denied it all. Even by manufacturing, as he did, deliberate lies, distortions, creating a belief that I had something to do with the jury tampering, if there was such. In the midst of his legal troubles, Hoffa was still hard at work within the Teamsters Union. Just three months prior to the jury tampering charges, he had gotten the master freight agreement signed in Chicago which he considered the high point of his career. It guaranteed standardized protection and benefits for more than 450,000 over-the-road and local drivers. But later that year, he was convicted of jury tampering and sentenced to eight years, plus an additional five years for fraud in his misuse of the union pension fund. Hoffa's reign over the Teamsters Union was finished. As for Bobby Kennedy, he resigned his position as attorney general 
and never recovered from the devastation of his brother's murder. I went up to talk to him, say goodbye. This is Robert Blakey again, who was the chief counsel on the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He also worked very closely with Bobby Kennedy in the early 60s. And, and the hand was like a, a fish. And his eyes were not there. I mean, we had a nice little conversation and I left, but it wasn't the same person who I had conversations with about cases. On March 7th, 1967, Jimmy Hoffa checked into the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. He vowed he would return and somebody would pay the price. Shattered is produced and edited by Zach Rosen and Jeremy Allen. Now, if you'd like to help support our show, become a member of Shattered Plus. For just $3.99 a month or $25 a year, you'll get exclusive access to bonus episodes of our Hoffa season. You'll also get our regular episodes without ads. On this week's bonus episode, we're bringing you a live show that we did back at the beginning of December. It was a kickoff event for this season. I interviewed former assistant U.S. attorney Keith Corbett, as well as journalist Scott Bernstein. We did the event at Andiamo Restaurant in Bloomfield Township, Michigan, which in 1975 was the Marcus Red Fox, the last place Jimmy Hoffa was seen. To hear my conversation with Corbett and Bernstein, and to get access to a whole bunch of other bonus episodes, join Shattered Plus today. Go to shatteredpodcast.com to make it happen. Next week on the show, just because I like you, we're going to publish a bonus episode in this feed. We'll take a look behind the curtain of the JFK assassination. You'll find out why the FBI was more focused on Kennedy's car than his murder. And then the following week, we'll bring you episode four, The Comeback. Hoffa's battle to regain control of the Teamsters is on but some players he worked with in the past have gotten pretty comfortable with Frank Fitzsimmons, who Hoffa installed as president just to keep the seat warm. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.